It was an extreme weather event that literally lasted eight minutes. This nasty storm came in. Everything got really dark. It rained really hard. We lost power. We lost power. And Danielle packed it up and she left with uh, the rest of the team for the day. And then about 15 minutes later. When the sun was out. (laughs) Yeah, the sun came out. The clouds were gone. The lightning was gone. So I was back working at my home office. And all of a sudden we heard sirens. And then we get a knock at the door. Right. It happened to be a staff member that was just checking in, wanting to know if we'd heard. I said, what happened? And she said, Platykill's on fire. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, back to my home state of New York today and to one of my personal favorite locals. First, real quick. I'm going to ask you to please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. There is an article there that accompanies this and every podcast that provides charts, photos, history, and tons of additional context on our conversation. I love the podcast, but the podcast is just a small part of the storm. If you want the full experience, you need to add the Storm Skiing newsletter into your media diet. That's where I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year, and you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe to the Storm Ski Newsletter. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Ski Newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter, Instagram, or threads at Storm Ski Journal. Episode 140. Danielle and Laszlo Vete, owners of Platykill Mountain, New York. Look, I'll be honest. When I first moved to New York 21 years ago, I went straight to Hunter Mountain. And why not? It was the most famous of the ski areas in New York City's immediate orbit. And with 1,600 vertical feet and a high-speed summit lift, I had to go check it out, especially after growing up with Midwest bumps that topped out at 500 vertical feet. I checked out Wyndham next which was similarly decked out with big vert and fast lifts. But eventually I realized that, like most New York skiers, I'd made the mistake of gravitating toward the biggest names rather than seeking out the best experience. Don't get me wrong here. I love Hunter and Wyndham, especially on a weekday when the rest of New York City isn't there skiing right alongside me. But the richest atmosphere and the best terrain in the Catskills isn't at either of those two mountains. It isn't at Bel Air either, a state-owned mountain with a base to summit gondola and some really fun terrain. No, the purest ski experience in the Catskills is at family-owned Platykill, and it's not even close. Picture this, 30 years ago, nine ski areas operated in those mountains north of New York City. One by one, High Mount, Scotch Valley, Cortina, Bobcat, and Sawkill went under. Platykill is the only independent that survived. How and why? Yes, great terrain helps, but with 1,100 vertical feet, one chairlift, and basically no snowmaking, Platy was starting from behind. Not only was its survival not guaranteed, it was frankly downright improbable. Enter the Vetes. Since they bought the joint in 1993, they've built Platykill up brick by brick, adding a little snowmaking each year, pulling down an 1,100 vertical foot T-bar and replacing it with a used double chair that is now one of New York's greatest chairlifts. And they did it all without taking on traditional debt 
and adopted a novel operating model that offers public skiing Friday through Sunday and rents the ski area out to private entities midweek. It is not just one of the greatest ski stories in the state of New York or in the Northeastern United States. It is one of the great modern family success stories in North American skiing. Let's hear it. My guests today have been the owners of Platykill Mountain, New York, since 1993. Platykill is the last surviving family-owned ski area in New York's Catskills Mountains. Platykill features 40 trails served by three ski lifts on an 1,100-foot vertical drop. They are, in my opinion, two of the smartest independent operators in the country and also very good friends of the storm. Danielle and Laszlo Vete are my guests. Danielle, Laszlo, welcome back to the storm. Always so fired up to talk to you. How are you doing this morning? We are doing morning, fantastic. Derek. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And we're honored to be back again. I know we were number three when you started this thing. And yep. uh, we think you have done an exceptional job. And, uh, you know, we we think that your your network should be mandatory listening and reading for every educational program out there in ski area management. <laughs> yes, you learn a lot from listening to your podcasts, mountain to mountain. Well, thanks so much for saying that, both of you. And if I could have you on every 10 episodes, I would, because <laughs> even though Platykill was one of the original ones, it is still one of the best. So I am so happy to have you back. You know, I want to, that conversation was in 2019. So there's a lot that's happened between now and then four years ago. But let's just go back to the immediate past here. How was the 2022 to 23 ski season at Platykill? Surprisingly good. Uh, you know, we were coming off the COVID years, which were exceptional. And uh, this last season was a very challenging year when it came to weather. But we still got the cold temperatures and we're able to make a lot of snow. And we made snow in places we've never made snow before by dragging hoses because we knew we couldn't rely on opening up our natural terrain on natural snow. And I think that the rollover from the COVID years and everybody wanting to get outside and do something and get out of the cities up north kept people coming. And, you know, they were finding and discovering our unique vibe here uh, compared to the three very large commercial areas that are around us. And uh, it, it really... Almost, almost set records, almost set records. It was down a little bit from the previous year, but not by much. So you talked about your snowmaking. You very deliberately, very carefully improve that system each year. Where are you at now with your snowmaking system? And what are you doing this off season to improve it? So we are right now probably at about 60% coverage with our snowmaking system. We focused on putting snowmaking onto all of our beginner and intermediate terrain on our triple chair side over the last 30 years. As we mentioned before, when we purchased this place, it had no snowmaking. So that was always our focus to add a trail of snowmaking every year for the last 30 years. And besides a few years, like when we put in the double lift, and, you know, a couple of, you know, challenging years financially, we pretty much kept up with that pace. We did start moving over several years ago to the double side where the double chairlift is and, and started putting in snowmaking over there. And we will continue to do so. But right now we are focusing on putting snowmaking into places where we've literally dragged lengths upwards of 500 feet 
to get snowmaking on some of our, our smaller connector trails off the triple side that never had snowmaking on them before. But we always were lucky enough to get natural snow to open those trails. And they're very shaded. So, you know, we were able to farm snow and store snow there in previous years. But this year, with the lack of snowfall, this was probably one of our lowest snow years ever. We were able to make snow on these places. And now we're just trying to make it a little bit easier for next year. And we've committed to purchasing some equipment to put on these trails. We're putting in pipe on Rascal Flats, which is our new trail we added last year as a novice trail. And that connects to a trail called I Think I Can. And those two trails are, one of them got widened and and built last year. This year we're widening I Think I Can and putting snowmaking on that. And uh, that's going to add probably another 2,500 feet of snowmaking to our network. So I want to focus on something you just said for a moment, and that's the fact that you've been adding more or less one snowmaking trail per year for 30 years. I I think that it's very difficult to run a ski area with all of the associated capital expenses in the modern world if you don't have the support of a large network. And you found a way to do it. And one of your main core principles is operating without debt. Talk about that principle how that's guided your business over the last 30 years and how that's allowed you to survive as a family business competing against giants. Yeah, that's been a real challenge. Um, We, you know, we purchased this place 30 years ago as a couple of ski instructors passionate about the sport of skiing and passionate about this place. This is where both Danielle and I taught skiing and I ran the ski school uh, for nine years before buying the place. And you know, we we went into this thing with uh, debt from the Small Business Administration and, you know, we didn't like it. So we kind of rushed to pay that off. That was a 15 year note. And while we were paying that debt off, we were watching one ski area after another fall by the wayside because of inordinate amounts of debt. And when we opened up this place in 1993, High Mount was still operating, Bobcat was still operating, and Scotch Valley Deer Run was still operating in the immediate area. And all three of those went under between 1993 and roughly 1999. And all of them failed because of debt. We, we watched this happen on a small scale and a large scale with American Ski Company falling apart, going down the tubes and burning in a ball of flames with something like $400 million worth of debt. So it it wasn't just limited to the small ski areas, but we knew if we took ridiculous chances, we could go by the wayside too. And we didn't want to be saddled with that debt and not sleep at night, not knowing what kind of season we're going to have, especially as we're building our snowmaking network. If you look back historically, 1993, which is our first year, 1993-1994, we received our literally record amount of snowfall that year. So when we first took this place over, we didn't think you can do anything wrong. You know, we, we, we didn't know why this place failed prior to our, our taking it over. Obviously, we know why, but, you know, that year was fantastic. The following year, it didn't snow until the end of January, and we didn't open the doors until February 5th. And we even made the cover of the New York Times on February 5th in 1995 
And you could still find that article in the archives right. of, of the New York Times. But, you know, that was because there was no snow in the Northeast and, and none of the other ski areas wanted the New York Times to take pictures of their slopes without snow on them. There was no snowmaking temperatures either. Well, that was our first entry into the world of snowmaking with one piece of pipe, one line of electric and one fan gun, which was on demo from Headco. And we were waiting for weather to run it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So we knew that if we were saddled with huge debt that year, it would have killed us. It would have killed us. We would have been done in year number two uh, because we couldn't have made the payments. We were we were making the mortgage payments to the SBA and barely. So we made it a point to go out and find private money and private debt to initiate our snowmaking plans. And we felt very comfortable doing that with people we knew who skied here and who had a vested interest in keeping this place going for their families. And they were very generous to loan us private money. And they didn't hold a gun to our heads in making payments in bad years. So we kind of just kept that as our mantra all the years. Let's spend money when we have money and let's tighten the belt when we don't. And, you know, we've been able to put in a chairlift with private money in 2002 and we were able to add a trail of snowmaking pretty much consistently every year, whether it's a full top to bottom trail or a short trail and add snow guns and, and buy portable snow guns and buy a lot of other people's throwaways and fix it up and made it work. You know, we got really good at fixing other people's junk and uh, <laughs> we're now we're doing very well following that mantra, but it has always scared us to take on debt and we're looking for that private money. We're always looking for that private money. And for our next big, our big lift, we'll be looking for private money. So you've fortified the mountain pretty well against bad winters at this point. Once in a while, though, Mother Nature does come through. And that happened in March. You had a big March. How big of a difference did that make to your overall season as a business? That was huge. That storm made our March season our March turned out to be a very good month because of that. That was a 39-inch dump. Skiers of New York posted it as the most amount of snow in New York State from that storm, possibly wow. in the Northeast, except for a couple of areas way up north. It was amazing. Oddly enough, we were away in Utah for the right. first time in, in 29 years. We got away for a ski vacation with our family to experience some of the record snowfalls in Utah. And that happened to be the week that that storm came. So <laughs> we were experiencing it and living it through text messages and photos from yeah. our from our staff, uh, clearing snow and opening up for one of our infamous powder days, because we were rented out for the day that day on our private mountain rentals, uh, which is a whole nother model of our operating here. But we uh, surprisingly got a cancellation. Oh, my gosh. About a week before from a big brewery in Long Island that rented the mountain that day. And uh, we ended up opening up for powder days, you know, so it was a big disappointment for the people that were signed up for that trip. But I think they came up on their own because that was a record day. From... I called it. I called it. I said, after 29 years, we finally take a family vacation out west, <laughs> the mountain for our very competent staff to run without us. And I said, get ready, guys, because while we're gone, you guys are going to have a massive snowstorm. <laughs> she predicted it. She and, predicted and we figured, it. oh, it's March, no big deal. We can get away. It's springtime. But I said, I just have this feeling. And lo and behold, yeah. <laughs> 
And we were skiing waist deep powder at Snowbird and Alta and powder. Mountain. Unbelievable. <laughs> so two questions there. Number one, how great was Utah? And number two, because you've sort of handcrafted this mountain over 30 years and it is like your third kid, right? And you've put everything you have into it. What was it like to be away from it in one of the biggest days of its history? <laughs> it was nerve wracking. It was nerve wracking for <laughs> Laszlo, but I felt very confident in our staff and our management team that we left to run things. And it was actually a really good feeling to know that we've taken the mountain to the point at which we can get away and they can handle a record snowfall crazy day not only with the crowds coming but the snow clearing that had to get done and the grooming work on the mountain to get the mountain prepared for opening so you know what it just went to show that things can run without we 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 have we have we have an incredible staff and and our mountain manager literally is the only person on our staff that's been with us literally since day one he started helping me out part-time the first year and getting this place going. And then for the next uh, seven years, he helped me out part-time. And then he finally came to work here full-time, but without our mountain macker, who's famous from the snow farmers video that we made this place, you know, he, they just did a fantastic job and our fleet maintenance manager, he was fantastic. And all of our staff, our office staff, everybody, really pulled it off and it was it was a wild wild day you know when the public heard that we had a mountain rental cancellation the reservations just started coming in and they didn't stop <laughs> it, it was it was fantastic because we now pre-sell our tickets or we have that available and uh, we were pre-selling tickets and i think everybody remembers the powder day from a few years ago when all the other three ski areas were closed because they had power failures and everybody came here, and that was our all-time record day. And uh, we lost internet that day, but we did not lose power. So everybody was literally sitting in the parking lots pre-buying their tickets as they came up to the ticket window. And we had a little hotspot set up on a laptop to issue the tickets. <laughs> but uh, that was the only internet we had here. Uh, we could not sell a ticket using our POS system without the internet working. So we fixed that since then. <laughs> So let's talk about those private mountain rentals. Platykill has really been a pioneer in this space. And you told the New York Times a few years ago that you think this actually saved your business, or maybe the New York Times framed it that way. I think since we last talked four years ago, this business has only grown. Talk about this from a couple of different angles. Number one, you've given me some really interesting stats before about how far in the future these are booked out. And number two, what can you tell us about what you're able to charge for a day and how that is increasing over time? Yeah, I mean, to operate Monday through Thursday for a small mountain like us located in a really rural area in the middle of nowhere, we can't rely on large school programs, suburbia, you know, people finishing up work, heading over to the mountain. Monday through Thursday just doesn't work for us. We tried going I... seven days a week when like your first year we opened and we just realized that it just financially is impossible. We would go out of business. So we decided to start these private mountain rentals kind of just happened as a couple skiers came over one day and were shocked that we weren't open. It was a midweek day and they said, what would it take to fire up those lifts? And it just sort of like- Well, we'll backstep a couple of our... So we were doing powder days very aggressively. If it snowed a foot or more, we would open up the next day for a powder day with absolutely no grooming. It would be like being out West for Western champagne powder. 
but it took a foot. And that day we got a snowstorm of about eight inches. And a group of guys came over and said, huh, you're not open? Come on, you got to open. Then, Danielle, you can continue your story. They said, how much would it cost? Well, anyway, then the wheels just started spinning and we thought, well, maybe we're on to something. Maybe this is something that we could offer Monday through Thursday where we know that people are going to make the commitment to our mountain and they're going to book it and they're going to put a deposit. And the great thing that's worked out for us is that these people make these commitments well in advance. So as you kind of touched on, we have almost fully booked for the upcoming season and have already started booking for 2025. And so... It's, it's been a way for us to get people to make the commitment, irregardless of how the weather is going to be, because getting someone to come ski here in the middle of nowhere on a Wednesday with bad weather without having a quote unquote powder day on tap is next to impossible to actually operate efficiently. So these private mountain rentals have enabled us to have consistent days of operation. We basically are open now full time and we can count on it. And we know that these uh, mountain rentals are actually going to come irregardless of the weather. They wind up having amazing days on the mountain because it's so much more than the skiing itself to have a private ski mountain for the whole day, all services operational geared towards your group. You know, if it's a corporate kind of thing, then the business pays for the tab, the actual, all the individual departments, whether it's food, beverage, rentals, that could all be a la carte where the individuals that are attending can pay for the items, or it can be set up if it's corporate, that the corporate pays the tab at the end. So it could be totally geared towards the individual group that's renting for the day. And it's been wildly successful. In fact, I can probably vouch for the fact that 90 to 95% of our mountain rentals are booked by people who have never been to the mountain before. Mm, Um, Yeah, they're actually just loving the idea of being able to have a mountain all to yourself for the day and they discover Platakil. It's been a great marketing <laughs> tool for us because uh, then we get a group of people to come here that are like, oh my gosh, I've like never skied here before. And wow, it's a uh-huh. great place. They discover it. it. Yeah. And w- what's the baseline price these days? How is how have you been able to increase that? What can you tell us there? The upcoming season, the base price is $8,500. It's for lift tickets up to 200 skiers there's an additional price you know for any additional guests beyond 200 and we've started booking for 2025 and that mountain rental price is going to be 10,000 i mean that's correct me if i'm wrong i think that's about double what it was when the new york times wrote that story which i want to say was in 2018 is that is that about right yes and it's something that we do need to be really i know you had kind of touched on that at some point it's definitely something we had to be very mindful of because what happens with these private rentals too is they come here and they say wow that was an amazing experience beyond just the skiing and snowboarding and they say okay how do we sign up for next year so we have a lot of repeat business that we have to be very mindful of so although we've had to increase the pricing because let's face it, we have to make a right business decision to open the doors and actually provide the service, have the place staffed full time now. So it has to make financial sense to do this. However, we find that the increments that we've been increasing the price every year has been fair relative to the cost to operate. And I think that because we have so many repeat customers, you know, we've been mindful of the increases from year to year. But I think even though we started out at whatever price we did, however many years ago, I think when new people find out about the experience and the opportunity, they actually question, wow, that's such a cheap price, even at what our current rates are. Oh, yeah. For, for a corporation in New York City, which you're the closest mountain to New York City that does this, that that 
ten thousand dollars is is their bagel budget for a week. So that right. you know that <laughs> I, I think that's a I think that's a very fair price, and I think it's a very smart business to build out. It seems as though just from my talks with you offline that you mostly do these Monday and Thursdays so that your staff can get some time off. Have you considered or have you expanded into Tuesdays and Wednesdays? It's just a matter of hiring more staff or do you want to draw that line and say, you know, we're still a family business. We're going to be a five day a week operation. Oh no, we, we've got some Tuesdays and Wednesdays in there too. It depends on the week. It depends on where it falls relative to holiday weekends and holiday weeks. I feel confident to say that the demand would be there if we opened up and said we would go to a seven day a week operation and book these rentals every Monday through Thursday. I feel pretty confident that by the start of the ski season, we could do that. It's just very challenging when it comes to staffing. Very challenging. Yeah. Very yeah. challenging. In a, in a rural area like this, where there isn't a lot of population and you know competing with the likes of Bel Air, Hunter and Wyndham gobbling up every possible person that's around here, it's very difficult. So we we really focus on taking care of our staff and, and keeping them happy and, and we don't want to overwork them and, and, and make it difficult. Out. So yeah. we don't want anyone to burn out. It's that's... not worth the extra one or two days a week to be greedy like that. It's it's worth it for us to just try to keep that one to two days open and be consistent this way. And hey, it's a great thing to be able to tell People, when they call come September, when minds start thinking about snow and winter to say, well, unfortunately, we are fully booked. Yeah. Um, it creates demand for the product. And they start saying, of course, the next question is going to be, OK, well, then how do I book this for next year? Right. So, And that's exactly <laughs> what happens. And then the days become less and less. So then, the, you know, then we start the season and then people are like, great, I want to rebook. And it's like, OK, great. Well, we don't have any more Thursdays left in, in January. It's like, what? You know, it's like, oh, because all those people who couldn't get the rental booked for this year have already booked now for next year. So it's an interesting phenomenon. It's a really unique offering that we are able to offer here based on our business model. And it's been wildly successful. A couple, a couple of groups are booking ahead for the next four or five years on a specific date, just so they don't miss wow. out on it. Unbelievable. Yeah. So it seems like this started as a sort of side hustle almost with your mountain where, okay, you know, we're, we're not doing anything Monday through Thursday. Let's do private rentals. It sounds as though this has grown into a major part of your business, maybe almost as important as your core Friday to Sunday period. What does that look like? I mean, how important are the private rentals overall to your business in relation to your traditional Friday through Sunday operating schedule? Very important. Very important for revenue, very important for for sales, but even more important, it's for our staff. It's a lot easier to hire someone to work full-time than it is to work part-time three days a week. If they know they can count on five days a week, 40 hours a week, it's a lot easier to get help and they appreciate the work. So as far as the business is concerned, yes, it is very important because a number of large skiers will tell you that on a rainy, crappy, cold day, they're lucky if there's 10 cars in the parking lot and maybe the bigger areas are getting 100 cars, but that's not enough to sustain themselves. So there's a lot of money to be lost during the week. At least we know we can depend on and we could forecast our revenue and our expenses based on these private mountain rentals from week to week. So as you've been building up the winter business, you've also been doing some really interesting things in the summer. I think one thing you've been doing really quietly, and I'd love to hear more about this, and I generally only talk about the skiing, but for some reason I'm really interested in your wedding business because it seems as though this has quietly become a very important part 
of your operating model. And I think it's something that just about any small ski area could do because they all have lifts, they all have views, they all have a base lodge that could be repurposed for the reception. So talk about this business, why you started it and how important that has become to Platykill. Well, the wedding business has been great for Platykill. It's an awesome summer operation to have here. It's done wonders for just the actual infrastructure, meaning like the base lodge, you know, steps, decking, you know, you're always fixing, improving the overall appeal of the mountain because you have to think about all those things when you have a wedding. And it just really takes a whole step up. You know, when you're a small business like this, it's like there's so many different places you could spend the money. So the first thing that always comes to mind as a ski resort, obviously, is snowmaking and the lifts and the grooming, you know, and it's like the lodge. Yeah, the lodge. But in reality, with the weddings, you really have to keep the lodge up. So I actually love it because I really feel that our old charming ski lodge has really been upkept well and restored nicely because we have that in mind and it only benefits obviously the skiers too. Um, in the winter months, everything is just a nicer appeal, but it's just something that's kind of always last on the list for improvements. But the wedding business has been great and we've really followed it along the same lines as our private mountain rentals from the standpoint of offering that continued like niche uniqueness of what we offer here. And for the weddings, we offer couples to have the whole week leading up to their wedding and their actual, obviously, wedding day here and even the Sunday after to do like a Sunday brunch send off with their nice. guests. So they literally have, we book one wedding a weekend here and we offer this true private uniqueness to our couples and we get to know them. It's a great experience. We get lots of guests that come here for all these weddings who a lot of them are skiers and they're like, we've never even been to this mountain before. Okay. Now we didn't we, know it existed. Now, again, another marketing <laughs> tool for us in our basket here, which has been another great opportunity for us to introduce new skiers to the mountain. So it's been great all around. How many weddings are you doing per summer at this point? Like 10 to 12. Oh, that's great. Do you do catering as well? Uh, we work with an outside caterer. That's our mm-hmm. quote unquote preferred caterer that we recommend, but folks can bring in their own outside caterer if they'd like. We try to offer a lot of flexibility and continue with our mantra of laid back, very real deal. <laughs> we, we try to we try to make it free of rules and regulations. Yes. We want them to feel very comfortable and very free in making their plans. And that really puts the, the wedding couples at a, in a very comfortable spot because- they don't feel like they're locked holding in. locked into us. They don't feel like, all right, they're a captive audience and they have to use our food. There's so many different things they can do. And I think that's something special we can offer, something that's totally different than your big wedding venues where everything has to be done in-house and, and this is the rules and you're in by this time and out by that time. We're like, make it a wedding like you're in Europe. You can go around the clock if you want to. And by only doing, you know, 10 to 12 weddings an off season, it does allow us the opportunity to open the mountain up to other events as well. So we do host private events for like winter private rentals. We do summer private rentals where, you know, corporate groups will come in or I think coming up next weekend, we have a yoga festival here being completely run by an outside organization that just rents the mountain from us to put on other events. So those weddings you were doing at the top of the double, and we'll talk about what happened with the double last summer. Did, did you build a second platform on top of the triple, and do folks now have a choice? Yes. They, they do, yep. We built that 
wedding platform literally in two weeks because when that double chair got hit by lightning, we had our yoga festival for last year, two weeks after that lightning strike. So we had to build a deck really quick. We have two decks. They're identical. They hold up to 150 guests on each deck. So now we have a deck on the top of each lift. And yes, Uh we do allow the couples now, provided that we're not, you know, don't have any extended, extensive lift maintenance projects going on on one or the other. We give them the choice of which. Which one's more popular? Um, it's, this is the first season of offering that. Last year, we didn't have the double. We only had the triple last year because of what had happened to the double. So this year we're finding it's really 50-50. There's different things okay. about each lift. Some like the two person, some like the three person. The double yep. has a narrower lift line. The triple has a much wider open space. And they both have gorgeous views and they're looking right. at the same valley. So it's just a matter of kind of your choice. And there's specifics on why one is better over the other as far as what the couple's looking for. But it's great for us because it gives us a backup plan in case there is an issue with one lift and we need to, you know. Pivot to the other lift. Pivot to the <laughs> other lift. Uh, There's always plan B and it just uh, alleviates all the stress for the couple because God forbid we tell them that they can't have their wedding on the top because that lift is down. Um, So yeah, and allows us to sleep at night. All right. So one more non-skiing question here and then we'll get back to winter. Platykill was an early adopter of lift served MTB. You moved away from that. Curious why you moved away from that. And if now that we see this sport surging in popularity, Mountain Creek has a really great MTB program. Wyndham has one built up. Is this something that you'd consider getting back into? Well, you know, when we started doing mountain biking here in 1995, we were one of the only ones on the East Coast doing lift serve mountain biking. No one else wanted to take the risk. They didn't know what was involved with the risk. They weren't familiar with it, you know, the liability and everything. And we were always kind of bucking the odds and uh, doing things a little different here. And we adopted it early and actually worked with a lot of the mountain bike companies developing downhill mountain bikes because when we started it, they didn't exist. So all of our trails were very natural, quote unquote, single track trails, which was the popular word back then. Very uh, shaly. Very well, it was, and it, they were narrow. They were narrow and twisty. They weren't these machine built, groomed, wide cruisers that now, you know, a lot of these big ski areas have. And you know, we were good at it, but we were also the only ones doing it. And then Mountain Creek, their early Mountain Creek operators of Diablo Mountain Bike Park opened up and Mount Snow opened up. And we started working with Mount Snow and we started our first ever race series. And we were doing races as early as 1996. And uh, it was it was wildly successful. We had races and we had events up here with anywhere from 700 to 900 racers. And at times we had cross country races going on here because there were no downhill bikes. And at that point, it was they worth were, the while to run mountain biking. It, was, it made it, sense. It, it, it made sense. Exactly. The problem is, is that too many mountains have their lifts spinning, of course, in summer months to offer summertime off-season activities. And that market that's going to downhill mountain bike on the type of trails that we had built just was so small. And and all these mountains are now opening up for zip lines and aerial courses and all these types of activities. So it's like they were saying, well, what the heck, let's build some bike trails. So before you knew it, there was bike trails at a lot of ski mountains. And then ski mountains started putting in these manicured 
machine machine built built mountain bike trails, which financially was never, ever going to be in the realm of possibility for our business. You're looking at a million dollars, a trail that was built at a nearby competitor here. How do you compete with that? And I think as much as people thought Platykill was cool and the mountain bike trails were hardcore, in reality, what people gravitated toward was more that manicured that, you know, they come to Platykill once a season, you know, put us on their radar. That wasn't enough for us to sustain. Well, just like, just like the midweek winter business, you know, they were also days that were cold and rainy and you'd have 10 cars show up in the parking lot and you really were sitting on the edge wondering, is it worth even opening the doors? Is it worth paying your labor? Is it worth running the lift? But you had to, you know, in order to maintain consistency. But those were big days of losing money. You know, finally, the point came where the wedding business was picking up so aggressively that, you know, we just decided that the revenue model and the liability was so much safer and so much better with the wedding business that the mountain biking business, you know, had to go away. We lost all that market share. We lost a ton of market share to all these other ski areas that spent millions of dollars on building these trails. And again, it, it would have put us into debt to do that. And we would never see. Yeah, we, we, we would have never seen a return on the investment. So it didn't make sense. And there's a lot of demand for it now. Yeah, there's more people doing it, but I still don't think the numbers are anywhere near the ski numbers. And especially for the type of mountain bike terrain and trails that we had here, I think that people, like I said, might come and try it once or twice a season, but there's so many other places they can go to where it's a lot, where they can ride and where you'll, they'll find that machine-built terrain. It's never off the table, to answer your question. Mm-hmm. Never okay. off the table, but the model would have to be right. The operators would have to be right. It might have to be someone that comes in and operates the program and takes all the risk. Well, the nature, too, of yeah. how our mountain is laid out, it's in like a natural ski bowl and everything comes down to the base area, we don't have a wide base area to kind of say, okay, well, mountain biking is going to run over here. We're going to run that lift. And, you know, the guests can use kind of that lodge over there. And then we'll have a wedding over here. It doesn't work like that here. So you kind of have to pick which direction you want to go. Do you want to stay focused on your weddings and their event business? Or do you want to go the direction of mountain biking? We found that the two really don't go together. It's impossible to have a wedding tour here on a Saturday and show a couple what it's like. And then you have mountain bikers like zooming by. It just doesn't doesn't work. Dressed head to toe in body armor, covered (laughs) in mud. All the chairs are covered in mud. That the wedding couple has to ride right. on. <laughs> and, and in reality, the guests are coming. They're coming for the event. So it's we're not yeah. the weather dependent. And it's kind of nice to have that since we are so weather dependent in the winter. Mm-hmm. It's kind of nice in the off season to not have that. But personally, I do miss it. You know, I'm a cyclist. I really had a passion for the mountain bike side of things. And I miss it. And I still yeah. talk to a lot of people who used to ride here that are constantly asking us to reopen and do something. And we've rented the mountain a couple of times to private groups to do mountain biking events. So that's also always available. So the legacy of the trails is still there for us to enjoy in the winter time. For those of you listening who haven't skied at Platykill, there is a ton of little paths through the trees that you can, it's basically like a de facto ghost trail network that you can enjoy. Yeah. And and you're you're still improving your trail network as it is. So you mentioned the Rascals Flats trail earlier. And Platykill has always had two really great 
green runs around either edge of the ski area, which is Overlook and Powder Puff. But that was kind of it. And then you built this new trail. So talk about Rascals Flats, why you built it, and how happy you were with that trail last year. Rascal Flats was a game changer. And we noticed this early on because early in the season, it was snowing pretty hard. So we were able to open it without snowmaking on it. And then the weather got warm towards the end of December, beginning of January. And we realized this has become probably our second most popular trail. And the skiers were absolutely loving it. And I think it really turned into lift ticket sales and drove our business by having that extra wide beginner trail with the same grade as Powder Puff. And we realized very quickly that we need to make snow on this to keep this open literally right to the end of the year. So we staged snow guns along it and we literally dragged hose and electric extension cords through the woods to run five snow guns on it so that we could keep a base of about two and a half feet of snow on it all season long. And it literally turned into the most popular trail on the hill. Then people started using I Think I Can when we had natural snow. So we said, you know what? Even though it's really narrow, we have to start making snow on that. And that's where we started dragging 500 feet of hose to open that trail up. And we ran a couple of snow guns on that. Those guns were running as air water guns. And then there was one electric gun that was about 300 feet from an electric outlet. And, and we made snow there. Which is why we're putting in snow. That's why we're putting snowmaking in there. <laughs> on those two trails specifically for the upcoming at the, season. At the same time, we knew we needed to keep our trail count up. So there's two other trails. Uh, one was a black diamond and one was a blue square. One was called Shoot that we made snow on, which we never made snow on ever before. Okay. And there was another one called Bailout, which is the one that comes down uh, next to Blockbuster. That comes all the way out to the face, halfway down. And we made snow on that too. So in the very, very near future, we'll be putting snowmaking on those two as well and widening those up a little bit too. Yeah, to speak to your question, it's extremely important for us to continue to, wherever we can, add more beginner terrain on the mountain. Because we are that natural ski bowl layout, you know, you tend to have the trails really ski right down to the base lodge. So as a result, there's quite a bit of vertical here on our slopes. So we kind of are relying on the wraparound trails to be, you know, they're the beginner terrain, which is like the way down to kind of get the easiest and widest turns, you know, down to the base area. So these trails that Laz is talking about as offshoots to the Powder Puff Trail, meaning specifically the Rascals Flats, and I think I can, you know, is critical to just providing alternative ways down for those beginner skiers, because we just don't have the volume of beginner terrain that we wish we had more of. (laughs) Are there areas on the mountain where you could add more terrain. What I'm thinking of is, if you're looking at the trail map between Overlook and Lower Ridge Run, I'm I'm saying this for the benefit of the listeners, the trail map doesn't show a lot of acreage there, but it's vast. That's sort of squished for appeal on the eye. There's a lot of terrain in there that's pretty low angle. Is that an area where maybe we could see more green terrain built, or do you have other places in mind? It definitely could be. I oh. think the issue is is snowmaking again. Like no, that we... side of the mountain has you know very very limited snowmaking infrastructure, at least to to build off of. I think first off the bat would be to get Overlook expanded and covered in snowmaking. Um, so it's way easier for us to focus on 
the Rascals Flats, and I think I can because we're basically just extending off of existing snowmaking infrastructure. Right. And we've talked about it to take on putting in snowmaking, you know, top to bottom on the other side of the mountain, the uh-huh. other wraparound trail called Overlook you know, would be wildly successful for us. It would open up a world of terrain. I think primarily most of our skiers ski on the one side of the mountain because that's where the beginner trail is. And that's where Rascal Splats and I think I can and Powder Puff all reside. So as great as the other side of the mountain is without snowmaking top to bottom on a nice wide beginner trail over there, you know, it precludes people from taking that lift over the other. So, I mean, I think the main focus for the next phase would be to just get some snowmaking infrastructure over on that side of the mountain so that we could just get some snowmaking on the existing trail that we do have, Overlook. We need to have a good year. That trail is over a mile long, and that would be a lot of pipe, and that would be a lot of hydrants and a lot of snow guns. And it would be a lot of investment. It would be a big investment. And we we know we know there would be a a return on that investment to add a consistently open beginner trail from that side of the mountain. But when it's open, it is our second most popular trail. (laughs) It's a phenomenal trail. You you know, the the one difficult part of that trail is at the very end where it gets narrow and steep. And and I know like Platykill, for those who haven't been there, it is 1100 feet of fall line skiing. I mean, this is not one of those places like Bel Air where it's steep for 300 vertical feet and then you sort of coast down. This is a sheer mountain. Is there anything you can do about that last 150 yards of overlook? There is. There is. And and we've talked about it before. And we've actually penciled in some trail development over there. Uh, Like you said, between Overlook and Ridge Run, I've got two trails in there and then one extension of a trail in there to make three trails in there. But by expanding that bottom stretch, I have a way to keep that pitch as gentle as the rest of the trail. But it's only worth doing once I can put snowmaking in over there, you know. But that is the long-term vision of developing that side of the mountain. We definitely have a plan. It's just a matter of being able to pay for it. (laughs) So looking beyond your current trail footprint, which is pretty big, and there's a lot of, I mean, if anyone ever goes there on a day when there's glade skiing, the mountain skis huge for what the advertised acreage is. But is there potential to expand beyond your current borders? What do you own and and what is the potential there? There is potential. Again, it's going to take a big investment. There's land that we currently lease that we are using for snowmaking right now for water. And we could potentially expand onto that terrain and really become a big, big player in the world of ski areas. Because if we were ever able to expand down there, we would increase our vertical drop to 1,500 feet, and wow. we would add a tremendous uh, flat base area. That's that's, to the, the that's ski where area. all the beginner terrain would reside. Yeah, that that would become our new base area, and that's our base of our lodge would become the Mid Mountain Lodge because down there it's absolutely beautiful, beautiful terrain. But uh, but that's a heavy lift. That's a heavy lift to make that happen. And I think that's where, you know, we could potentially open the door to some significant outside investment or partnership or, you know, some sort of joint venture maybe with another 
ski area operator or another company that has an interest in, in the ski world. You know, we, we see all these investments that are being made at the Vales, the Boynes, and even private areas like Wyndham with new investors coming in and, and new ownership coming in. You know, that might be in the cards for us in the near future. You know, we're not getting any younger and there's only so much we're going to be able to do ourselves. And we're ready to take that next step, you know, to make this place grow a little bit faster and achieve some of our goals and dreams that, that we have in mind. So when you consider any investment like that, is a core principle to you to still keep this a family-owned ski area and, and perhaps you would have partners? Or, or are you talking about perhaps even selling Platykill? I don't have an interest in selling Platykill. We have an interest in maintaining our vibe. Our vibe is so important. It's I amazing. truly believe that we built this mountain and we've been successful because of our passion for the industry and our staff and our team's passion for the skiing and for Platykill Mountain. And we want to kind of maintain that flow into the future. I, I but don't, it can be so much more, I think. It, it and could, that's what we would love to actually see come to fruition. Because the way we operate it now is how we know it, is what we can do with taking on no debt and operating the way we operate it. But the possibilities for the mountain, what it could be is a lot more. And we see that vision and we know what it could be, but you know, the wherewithal to do it. And it's hard to get investors to, to believe in the, if you build it, they will come model. <laughs> what would be important attributes for an investor for you? I'm, let me just throw out an example. You take someone like Snow Operating, right? Where it, it's a big company with a lot of capital, but they're very down to earth in their mission and in their understanding of, you know, Joe Hessian started working in Mountain Creek's parking lot, right? Yes, and now he owns the place. And, and so this is someone who's very grounded in what family-based and local and vibey skiing is. As you consider potential partners, is it someone like a snow operating? What are the sort of attributes that an investor would need to have for you to have the confidence that they're not going to come in and ruin your baby? That's a very good example that you brought up. And by the way, let me digress for a second. I think that your interview with Joe Hessian was mm -hmm. one of my favorites, one of my all-time mm -hmm. favorites of your last hundred or so interviews. And I have a lot of respect for Joe Hessian. I am very friendly with Joe Hessian. I'm really good friends with Hugh Reynolds, one of his executive team members. And we have a very tight relationship with Mountain Creek. And, you know, these guys come up here on their days off and they, they, they? see our powder. Um, they, they, they do these group trips called uh, their board meetings. <laughs> They're all snowboarders. <laughs> and, and, they, and they come up and have these unofficial board meetings up here on Fridays, once a month, roughly. And uh, we always hang out together. Great people. And I really like what they've done. I've actually done some work for Mountain Creek. When I was uh, in the mountain bike arena, I also had a, a side business in race organization and race timing because we were doing it for so long, we were good at it. So we spent a lot of time at Mountain Creek helping them run their races down there for a number of years. And uh, I really got to know the people down there really, really well. And a lot of their mountain bikers are also their skiers. And they originally started out mountain biking up here when they were kids and they were being shuttled up here by their parents. So what Joe has done there at, at Mountain Creek is, is an amazing story. And I think that his model would fit perfectly here. In fact, we like that relationship so much that we've just established a new season pass shared program with them. 
and uh, we're going to be offering all their season pass holders a discount, a significant discount to come skiing here as an added value to their season pass holders. But an important attribute to them was that they sell so many season passes that they need to free up their slopes on weekends and to try to alleviate some of their crowds. So they were happy to do this connection with us. And we're very excited about that because we think what they're doing there is great. And we could definitely see ourselves following that model or having an investor of that level operate this type of place. Because I think they would keep the vibe here that we've accomplished over the years. Unlike a veil, you know, that would come in and probably change everything and not run it the same way. It would be a little bit too corporate for how we've run things here. So let's think about if you did have an investor, what you could do. Talk a little more about that expansion potential, where it is in relation to the current trail map, and just the scope of it as far as acreage trails, lifts, whatever, vertical drop, whatever you can tell us. Well, nothing has been committed to paper yet, and nothing's been planned out with an engineering firm or anything, but the way we kind of just sketched it out, the land sits adjacent to the Overlook Trail, and there's about 270 acres there wow. that we could conceivably expand to. And I could envision a top to bottom lift that would probably in today's day and age be a detachable lift that would end up being about 4,500 feet long. Wow. A number of years ago, we were in bidding talks with Wyndham to buy their triple chair that they took out, the F lift, which ended up going to Greek Peak after everything was said and done because we were just not ready to purchase a lift like that in anticipation of putting it up that trail, but that lift was 4,500 feet long. So that mm. lift would have ended up perfect there, but it would have been a long fixed grip ride. The way Platic Hill sits now, like where our location is, where the road leads to the base area, our base lodge and our parking is really mid-mountain. The mountain really goes farther down the road. It really ends farther down the road. So yeah. other mountains where they have those wide base areas is because they have mountains that are built with the base area at the true base. Um, <laughs> the base area is not situated at the base of the mountain. So as Laz had explained, kind of the existing infrastructure that we have here now would more or less become mid-mountain. And it would just make sense for the mountain to continue where it actually kind of ends in the valley. And that would be kind of where the base area would sit. And that would open up a world of beginner terrain. We're kind of like the Alta of Little Cottonwood Canyon. Right, know? right. <laughs> because they're they're up at the end of that road and mm -hmm. we are at the end of the road. And even Powder Magazine, when they wrote that article a number of years ago, compared yeah. us to Alta, <laughs> calling us the I, Alta of the East. So there's a partner we might want to have. <laughs> Alta of the Catskills, I think it was. I'll, I'll start. I'll make the connection for you. Make the connection. I also like the Berry family of Jackson Hole, so you can connect me to them. <laughs> I like the way they run their area. I, look, I'm sure they would all love the association with an awesome independent ski area from the east because those are, you know, Alta and Jackson Hole, while they're big and famous and they're on the Icon Pass, those are independent ski areas. So they do have that same spirit as you do. So looking elsewhere on the mountain, I mean, another thing I would imagine would be top of mind if you brought in outside investors besides filling in your snowmaking system would be looking at your two existing lifts, which are great lifts. They run great. However, the triple chair is going to turn 50 next year. The double chair came used from Bel Air. It was first installed in Bel Air in 1977. Order doesn't use their lifts for too long. So you got it after they decommissioned it in 1999. Again, I realize you take very good care of your lifts. However, long term, 
what would you like to do with those two old hall chairs? How do you envision replacing or upgrading those? Well, first off, I'm going to speak to all the used lifts that are coming out in the industry. And I'm going to make a, a public statement here. Anybody taking out a lift, please don't cut it up and throw it in a dumpster before contacting small us or other small mountains because the value of spare parts is invaluable to the small industry. And I've literally spent my time over the last 10 years gobbling up any small ski lift that in my case is a hall ski lift anywhere in the Northeast that I could get a hold of just to stockpile parts for hall ski lifts. I literally had to bid on the website that Vale has set up for their foundation just to buy some spare triple chairs for my triple chairlift because they took out a, a triple chair from Big Boulder in Pennsylvania last year. And before I could even contact them and find out about it, the thing was being cut up and tossed into a dumpster. And I found out that I can at least still get some spare chairs. And they had 88 chairs that they took off that lift that they put out for public auction to sell them as porch swings and whatnot. So I was literally sitting on the website in a frantic bidding up chairs to buy. I ended up with 19 chairs from that lift, you know, just to have spares. So it's definitely something, though, that we have to like think about, we, you know, we, the future of Platykill. I mean, the reality of it is, yeah, those chairlifts are aging. But the bigger reality is, you know, you're a small business and you don't want to take on huge debt because we all know what could result. You have to stay focused, too, on getting the snowmaking in because you just can't count on Mother Nature. So it's something that's definitely at front of mind, but it's going to be a big chunk of change for, you know, little old Platykill to so our double, upgrade our lift. So our double lift, when we, when we got that from Bel Air, which we had to bid on through the Office of General Services, and it was a sealed bid, so we were bidding against scrap dealers who wanted it for scrap. When we took that in, we brought it in in 1999, and then we spent the next four years restoring that lift, and we literally replaced every moving part on that lift with new. So we really breathed a whole new set of lungs into that thing and really updated that lift. New gearbox, new motor, new braking system, new electric drive. And we have been updating our triple chairlift all along, constantly replacing parts with new, updating things and keeping the thing going. The whole ski lift of all the brands that are out there is the real workhorse of the industry. I don't know if the stat is still current, but at one point in time, there were more hall ski lifts operating in this country than there were any other brand of lift combined. That's how many lifts they made out of Watertown, New York. Uh, we still have a very close relationship with their engineer who still operates a ski lift parts company, selling parts specifically for hall lifts and upgrades. And we're always looking for opportunities to upgrade our lifts. One of the things we did for our triple chair, for example, last year was we ended up buying the whole top terminal, which would have been the top bull wheel and, and return terminal from Wyndham when they took their lift out because we have a plan to upgrade our top terminal on our triple chair lift. And that top terminal at Wyndham was identical to the one we bought and built brand new for our double lift back in 2002 through Von Roll. It was Von Roll at the time before Doppelmayr bought them. 
And um, we, we want to upgrade that. We are right now looking at an option of upgrading our base terminal for uh, a new lift and add hydraulic tensioning and get rid of our concrete counterweight for the bottom of the triple chairlift. And we're looking at some base terminals that have been taken out that haven't been scrapped as possibilities for doing that. But if you research and, and look into Mount Bohemia, for example, they are upgrading a very old lift that runs on their mountain that's a triple chair that they can only load as a double chair because it just doesn't have the, the power to run a full loaded triple chair up the hill. And they've got a plan to upgrade that lift to a fixed grip quad over the next three years at a budget of about $2.8 million. That for us would take a very large amount of debt as something we don't want to get into. So we're taking the baby steps approach to it. And we're very cognizant of keeping our lift current and keeping it updated and always budgeting extra money towards our lifts every year. So we're, we're keeping them safe. We're keeping them current. And anytime any kind of service bulletin comes out on them, we're addressing it right away. We're not deferring any maintenance. As you consider upgrades for the triple, is there any thought into changing where the bottom is? It's a little bit of a hike uphill right now. It's fine when you're coming downhill. It's a little bit of a pinched area. Have you thought about, and maybe it's just me, but have you thought about potential ways to slightly reposition that lift so maybe it's a little easier to get to or maybe not so congested right there? Well, the only way we could do that is to move that base terminal either up, uphill, which would not be good because it would be more of a climb to get to it, <laughs> or to move it downhill and regrade that whole area. It's a possibility, but you can't move it left or right because then you'd have to change the entire lift line. And, right. and that would be like building a new lift. So right now that is not on our radar, but upgrading that base terminal to create more room around it by putting in hydraulic tensioning versus the current counterweight mm. would potentially help give a lot more room down there to alleviate some of that congestion. It's but, all part of the challenge of being, you know, in that natural ski board right. that, you know, referred to with, <laughs> with those tree. You know, there's a trade-off. You've got the vertical because everything skis straight down to the base area. So there's the benefit, but then, you know, there's negatives to it. Like, for example, you know, everything comes down to the one base area and it does come down kind of steep and a lot of trails kind of all come to the one base lodge. And that does, you know, make for obviously congestion on busy days. All right, let's talk about that double chair lightning strike last year. Tell us what happened, how you got through that and ultimately how you were able to fix that chair up. Wow, that was quite stressful. <laughs> and it literally, it literally happened a year ago on July 12th. So literally the this same sort of weather scenarios that we're having right now with humidity and thunderstorms and uh -huh. lightning storms. It's also so familiar. It was an extreme weather event that literally lasted eight minutes. And okay. I wasn't here at the time I was at home, but Danielle was here and this nasty storm came in. It lasted eight minutes. Everybody was packing up. It was right around five o'clock. Everybody was packing up to go home and everything got really dark. It rained really hard. We lost power. We lost power. And Danielle packed it up and she left with uh, the rest of the team for the day. And then about 15 minutes later. When the sun was out. <laughs> yeah, the sun came the out. The clouds were gone. The lightning was gone. The sun was out, shining. I had electricity back at home. I hadn't had it at the mountain. We lost power. So I was back working at my home office. And all of a sudden we heard sirens. 
and down. Oh, jeez. Yeah. The fire alarm going off. And we thought it was for the storm. So there were trees down all over the place and there was power outages. So we saw the fire trucks running up and down and EMS running up and down the street, going in different directions for other calls. And then we get a knock at the door. Go ahead, Danielle. You answered the door. <laughs> right. It happened to be a staff member that was just checking in, wanting to know if we'd heard. And I said, heard what? And my son had just left the house just before the storm to head somewhere. And my mm -hmm. heart just dropped to my stomach because I thought, oh, my God, something happened with my son. I said, what happened? What, what's going on? No, I haven't heard. And she said, Platakill's got a fire. And mm -hmm. I literally said, oh, God, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, what? And I said, I mean, wait, what did you just say? <laughs> and she said, Platakill's on fire. Then it hit me and I said, oh my God, what, what's going on? And that's when she said, oh, you know, there'd been a lightning strike and one of the base terminals appears to be like on fire. So it just puts everything in perspective that, of course, that was a horrific incident. But right off the bat, when you think it could potentially be something with a family member, um, mm -hmm. it just puts everything into perspective. But it definitely, uh, reality set in once I got wind of exactly what had happened and the lightning had struck the base terminal as you can speak more to exactly what happened there so the, the fire department has always had platicill on their radar and they have a plan whenever and if ever they had an incident up here they were ready to respond and they were up here in no time and i'm very fortunate that three of our very long-term reliable employees are also members of the fire squad. One of them was mm. the fire chief for a long time, our mountain manager. And, you know, they- We the, knew the mountain was in good they, hands. Yeah, them. they responded incredibly fast and they literally kept the base terminal soaked down with water while the lift shack, which suffered a direct strike, burnt to the ground. And all the controls and everything burnt to the ground, the low voltage controls, the VFD drives, all the switches, all the inventory of lift parts that were in there, everything just literally melted to a giant heap. And uh, they kept the lift terminal soaked down so it wouldn't catch fire. And literally only a corner of the metal siding that's on it flaked some paint. And wow. some of the plexiglass panels warped from getting heat, but they never got any direct flame. So they, they did an incredible job. And, and we are forever thankful to them. And we're forever thankful to our neighbor who was taking a walk. They were literally taking a walk, walking their dog after the, the rainstorm, and they saw the smoke, and they ran up and saw that there was a fire, and they immediately called 911. And know. we were so lucky and blessed because, in reality, they happened to be homeowners literally right down the road, and they're part-time. Yeah. So they're not always oh. here, and they just happened to be up that day, and she just happened to be walking the dog, and she just happened to come upon the smoke and the smell and the fire. And so, God forbid, had that not all happened... Who even knows what could have been? Yeah, could have been a lot worse. So you have a, this great fast response. You limit the damage. Thankfully, don't lose the lift itself. But word got around. What was the response like from the industry? And ultimately, how were you able to work with some of your peers around the country to get, again, there's a haul lift. They haven't made haul lifts in years. So it's not exactly easy to source the parts. As you said, there's too many big operators scrapping lifts as they take them out. Yep. So talk about that process of rebuilding. Well, the process of rebuilding was quite challenging. It gave whole new definition to the word project management. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, supply you know, chain issues too. Supply chain issues were, were huge. They, it was a huge problem. 
We were very fortunate to have an ongoing relationship with an electrical engineer named Bruce Wyman. May he rest in peace. He just recently passed away. He was in the process of a five-year upgrade to our whole electrical infrastructure here. And um, he was luckily available to respond very quickly, to come down, meet with the adjusters, and come up with a plan to source out parts and pieces and try to put this whole thing back together again. We also got phone calls from people within the industry. We had mountains calling us. We did. We did. We had several mountains and several drive companies calling us to offer their services up to us. And and one that's very notable is the master electrician at Snow Basin in Utah. Once he found out the specs of the lift, they had just taken out a lift that matched the specs of this lift. As far as the electric motor is concerned, as far as the drive is concerned. And he said, we've got this, we've got it sitting in our storage yard. It's in dry storage. You know, if you guys are interested in this thing, we could really help you out. And uh, we were so grateful and so appreciative that we were able to ask a friend of ours to purchase this unit who owns a uh, business in medical imaging. So he was very familiar with this type of equipment and he helped us buy it and transport it here. And then we were able to lease it from him. And Mm. we ended up buying the entire lift building with the contents inside of it. And we decided to set a deadline of installing this thing if the new components we had ordered through our engineer and through our suppliers didn't come in in time we were going to install this system and this system was just upgraded in 2014 so it met all the current specifications at snow basin and then they took it out last year Amazing. Oh, or the year before we got the thing here and everything was set to go, but our engineers were convinced that they can get everything done. And the pieces and parts started coming in and we started installing everything. We built a new building from the ground up, new foundation, ran all new underground conduit and wire to the main transfer switch and the main electrical panel and whatnot. And our engineer was able to source all the parts he needed, but he wasn't sure they'd be in on time. So we still had the other one on the table. So our deadline, our drop dead date was November 1 to start putting in the drive components. In the meantime, we built the new building and we were getting ready to put it in. And our engineer was convinced that we could get the new drive in on time. So he he had us hold off. He said, don't put in this rental unit that you got from Snow Basin. Let's put in the new one. It'll be here. It'll be here. Don't worry. Well, November 1 turned into November 15. Mm. And November 15 turned into Thanksgiving. And we were getting promised it would be here. And the new drive showed up on December 1. Okay. And so then, we go test it in the snow. And then, and then the, the no, the engineer came and our lift, we have a lift construction, ongoing lift maintenance and construction contract with another one of our vendors called Feaster Mountain Services. Great people. And uh, they were all here and they literally spent the next two weeks installing it, testing everything. And then we had to do the load test. The load test is mm. where you have to physically load the uphill side of the lift with boxes, with bags in them, filled with water to equate to the weight of a fully loaded lift. And we were literally doing the load test the Friday before our planned opening date of December 17th that year, that Saturday. And we got it done. 
and we got it open and we opened it on time and it, we were literally wiping our brows and uh, <laughs> we got it done in the cold. The water was freezing as we were dumping it into the boxes. It was crazy, but, but we did get it done. But we are very, very grateful to the folks at Snow Basin. They're awesome people. And I made it a point to go out to Snow Basin when we were out there in Utah and just stop in and say hello. We never got to ski it. We only had a week out there, but I did see those folks. And big shout out to Daniel Brodney at Snow Basin. Well, just unbelievable. That double chair, that hall is probably my favorite lift in New York State. And I know a lot of the Platykill faithful would agree with me on that. Just 1,100 vertical feet of sheer fall line. From the top, you get one of the best views in all of New York skiing. So really, really happy you were able to get that done. You know, we're talking about Platykill here like it's the little guy, and it is, and, and you're a family-owned place, but you're also a very established, well-respected ski area that's figured out how to operate in the modern world. And you've been able to take the expertise you've built over 30 years and help out some smaller ski areas or some ski areas that are up and coming. So just a couple months ago, a longtime volunteer patroller at Platykill, Mike Taylor, purchased Holiday Mountain, which frankly, I was convinced that Holiday Mountain would be the next lost New York ski area when I skied there a couple of years ago, because most of the terrain had been abandoned. The staff was not super nice and not super organized. It was very hard to buy a lift ticket in the COVID year or their website was old. So tell us what you know about Mike as a person and how you've been able to help him in his efforts to rebuild Holiday Mountain. Well, I will support any small ski area from going under if there's anything I can possibly do, whether it's helping them with their snowmaking and fixing snow guns or snow cats or whatever. Mike is a very good friend of mine, and Mike has been skiing up here since 1998 as a ski patroller. He's a paramedic himself and a very smart and successful businessman in that Monticello area. He was born and raised there. And for years, Holiday Mountain has been for sale. And he's been trying to talk me into buying it. And of course, I love the idea of expanding to another small ski area and creating a feeder area to feed Platykill. And he had these great ideas of how it would be a great feeder area and whatnot. And he kept pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. He introduced me to the new owners of Davos, Big Vanilla Davos that used to mm -hmm. exist down there who own the property. Hey, this guy wants to get this going. You know, maybe there's something you guys could do together. You know, maybe you could be a consultant, whatever. These were all very daunting thoughts for me, you know, to expand my horizons. I'm very involved in the day-to-day -day here and it, it would be very difficult for me to make that happen. Well, finally, push came to shove this year and Mike started talking about him buying it. And he was talking to me, you know, quite a bit about it this past winter because he really felt that this would be their last year. If something didn't happen there, then it would probably not open again next year. And he also got wind of the fact that some of the local Hasidic community was considering buying that. And he knew that it would go down the tubes if they bought it because they would not buy it to operate it as a ski area. They would probably level it and just build more housing because that's a very popular summer vacation area for the Hasidic population. And this is exactly what happened at Scotch Valley and Deer mm -hmm. Run. And, you know, never to operate again as a ski area, but two 
lifts sit there that look haunted and ghost-like on the ski slopes. And he didn't want to see this happen because Holiday Mountain has always been a staple for the local community down there. It always had a great night skiing program and a great after school program. And he really felt he needed to do something. So he was kind of looking for that blessing from me, that endorsement from me and that guidance from me. And I finally told him, look, do it. And the funny thing is, is that Mike's wife was asking Danielle the same thing. And Danielle kept whispering in her ear, don't let him do it. Don't let him do it. You don't know what you're getting into. <laughs> Amazing. You know, it was, it was really funny how it was all happening. But uh, Mike, I told him emphatically that it could be a major success story. It's located in a fantastic location right off the highway, the famous mountain. You could see a ski lift from the highway. In fact, when they were building Route 17, they pushed material over onto the lands of Holiday Mountain by contract and through eminent domain and stuff like that when they needed to push some of the rock there that they were blasting away. And uh, I told him, do it. This is a shoe in And he went ahead and, and purchased the mountain and made the commitment to Platykill that this will become the feeder mountain for Platykill. And we're going to do whatever we can to make it happen. And I've kind of been a, a mentor to him through the process. I introduced him to all my contacts I've made over the last 30 years, from lift contractors to snowmaking contractors to snowmaking guns that I would recommend, the piping and the pumping system needs to be updated and everything. And I really get excited about the project because it's a project I would have loved to do if I had the wherewithal to do it. So he's going gangbusters at it. He's committed a lot of money towards it. And, uh, He's got the support of the community. The community thinks he's a hero for saving this place. He's working with the State Economic Development Fund and, and trying to get grants and things like that. But he's he's all in. He's all in. He's got both feet in and he's not backing down. And he's he's really made a commitment to totally revamp that place. I helped him buy a, a snowcat from a local ski area that was selling a snowcat. I helped them buy a lift from Massanutten in Virginia. And he purchased these things and, and trucked them up. He has a trucking company with one of his companies. So it all worked out and it's, it's happening. So I think we're going to see a major revitalization there over the next three to five years. And he's going to be wildly successful. You know, I've spoken with Mike and I had a chance to meet him down at NSAA, down in Savannah at the national convention. I have been really impressed, not just with his willingness to invest, but with his energy and his attitude. And I think that sort of thing is infectious. And I think the community gets that. And I think they feed off it. And I think that makes it something that they want to support. Absolutely. Because I think he's definitely a big part of the project. Why he took it on was because he wanted to save the mountain. It's a huge part of their community. Skiing is a huge part of his life. And he just, just couldn't fathom it going away. So it's got to come from the heart. Running a ski mountain, running a small ski mountain, you've got to definitely have heart. And he's got three kids who are now actively Hello. involved. Amazing. <laughs> Learning Family everything business. there is to know. Family business. <laughs> and we're teaching them all the way. So you're helping the small ski areas survive because Lord knows we, we only have so many left in New York State. And we got to save the ones that are left. But I do want to talk about the big boys around you. You know, since we last spoke in 2019, we spoke just a month after Vail Resorts acquired Hunter Mountain. And so we had not yet gone through a season 
where you had to compete directly against the Epic Pass. So you've now had four seasons of competing against that. And that is, as everyone knows, a very bargain priced product. It's you know 676 for early bird for an Epic Local Pass. And that gets you access to Hunter and then 40 other mountains. In the meantime, Wyndham in 2020 joined the Icon Pass, which was 829 early bird. And that gets you access, obviously, to mountains all over the place, plus five days at Wyndham. And then Platykill has a season pass that early bird is 779 and now is 799. You obviously are open those three days per week. So let's just zoom out here with all of that context and your biggest competitors, your well-capitalized competitors joining the two major national passes. What has it been like to compete against those passes directly for the past four seasons? And how, if at all, has that impacted Platykill's business? It's definitely been a challenge. It's a challenge for all the small independent mountains now to try to you know, compete with the, the larger conglomerates that have multi-mountain passes and these other groups that have formed with multi-mountain ownership type pass deals out there. So it's definitely harder to compete, but we've found that people do like the quality product that we offer here. We do offer something uniquely different in what you'll find at those other ski mountains. Um, it takes a lot for a small mountain to operate. And I think that our skiers have come to appreciate the value that they are getting, even though our pass price relative to these mega passes may seem like a lot. So it's like, why don't you guys just discount it and be competitive and be cheaper than them? But what we've come to find is that our customers are willing to pay for a quality product, a quality experience. Our snow doesn't get skied off because there's such volumes of people at our mountain. There's not crowded trails, overcrowded base areas, long lift lines for high-speed lifts. I think that people are kind of coming full circle. They appreciate the authentic, old school, old fashioned, not very many left smaller ski mountains that offer this niche, really is a niche now, unique ski experience. And people are willing to pay for that and they see value in paying for a season pass at Platykill, even though it may be more than some of these corporate passes that allow you to ski at, you know, 15 different mountains. And we've just found that it's the way for us to stay unique to our brand and true to who we are. And people are willing because they know that it takes a lot for a small business to operate. We have a lot of overhead. We have a lot of expenses. We have to pay people $20 an hour minimum to work here. To compete and, with and to compete to, with the to, yeah, minimum wage that they set at. At, at other mountains at, nearby within 20 minutes from here. So it takes a lot for us to pull that off. And I think that people appreciate that and they don't want to see the small mountains go away. So they're willing to pay an extra 100, 200 bucks for a pass knowing that that pass is priced at that price because that's what it takes. Has competing against the Epic and Icon passes, has that impacted your past sales or have your past sales been doing well because of this COVID surge and other outside factors we've been seeing? Our passes have been doing amazing. And we actually find that a lot of these Epic and Icon pass holders come to Platykill on days on when weekends, they don't yeah. want to deal. deal with the crowds, the overcrowding that's happening at these large resorts. So it's actually benefited us that we have a lot of people that are purchasing these types of passes and a Platykill pass. Yeah, a lot of people have both passes. All right, let's. Uh, that takes us to Orda because that's the one thing you do have in common with Wyndham and Hunter is you're all competing against Orda. So let me lay out some of these numbers for you and then I'll give you a chance to react. So 
for several years, the average capital budget for Orta. So for folks listening who are not familiar, Orta is the Olympic Regional Development Authority. They manage three ski areas, Bel Air, Gore, and Whiteface, all in New York State, plus a bunch of Olympic facilities up near Lake Placid. So they were getting an average of around five to 10 million per year from the state. It's all state subsidies, uh, taxpayer money for their capital budget. Over the past five years, that number has jumped to between 100 million and 120 million per year. An independent investigation by NPR recently concluded that that totaled $620 million over the past six years of taxpayer money to the Olympic Regional Development Authority. They are asking for an additional $120 million per year on average through 2027. All of this was ostensibly to prepare for the World University Games, which just took place in Lake Placid. Ticket revenue for those events totaled $706,000 after investing $620 million into the facilities. You know, Orda doesn't really seem to know exactly where all that money went necessarily, or even what they're asking for each year. So those are the numbers. React to that. <laughs> what do we say to that? It, it's it's how very, do, very how hard. We, to how do we to even... That. It's an we inordinate could, amount of we money. We could go on a tangent here, but I think it's just more important to just for you to just state everything you just said, those facts, and then imagine what it's like for a small family run privately operated ski mountain to compete with that. So, so let me ask this another way. You are a taxpaying entity, I'm assuming, unless there's some tax breaks, right? (laughs) So there have been programs in the past, uh, you know, subsidies for high energy snow guns, for example, or low energy rather. How can New York State better support its independent ski areas? Because let me give you just one example. So Gore Mountain next year will put in a high speed quad at North Creek. That lift will replace a triple chair that was put in, and I'll I'll fact check this, but I believe it was put in in 2010. So it's a 13-year-old lift that they're replacing with a high-speed quad that will cost, I think, I want to say $12 million. I don't know what Platykill is worth. I don't think your ski area is worth $12 million. I don't think any independent ski area other than maybe Holiday Valley in New York is. So your taxpayer money is going to subsidize a $12 million lift at Gore Mountain, which already has one of the most modern lift fleets in the state. How can, and feel free to react to that if you want, but how can New York State make sure that its family-owned independent ski areas are able to compete against this largesse, not from Vail Resorts, not from a company with the big outside investors, but with taxpayer money? Well, the first thing they can do is not scrap that lift that they take out. The 2010. Mm-hmm. The 2010 lift. And <laughs> right. they could offer it up to me. And, uh, you know, that could update my lift fleet here. <laughs> That'd be a nice gesture. <laughs> that would be a nice right. gesture. Being well, that our, 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 our lift is how many years old? <laughs> 50, almost 50. 50. So a 2010 <laughs> right. that they're going to scrap to put in a high-speed quad. Um, yeah. That. Right, but then there's you know there's there's three dozen other independent scariest too, right? So that would benefit Platykill, but then you still have Snow Ridge and Titus and West Mountain right. and all these other places right. who who are kind of stuck out in the cold. Easy. So I mean, are there? Do you have ideas for how New York? I, I mean, other than not subsidizing Orta and maybe contracting them out to Vail or whoever, are there programs like that snow gun program that they could do? The problem is, is not enough programs, and I don't understand how. The politicians and the legislature of New York does not see how subsidizing these three ski areas with this inordinate amount of money 
is helping the ski industry in New York State when there are nearly 50 other privately owned ski areas, some as big as Vail and Holiday Valley, but many of them as small as Platykill and Snow Ridge and these others that you mentioned, and not offering something up as an olive branch or something up as a way we could swallow that bitter pill of that inordinate money going to these recreational facilities that directly compete Mm -hmm. with the private sector in New York state. You know, there, I can't think of another industry where the state of New York competes with private industry. Other states have recognized this and have leased out their areas to private operators. And although they're on state land and they don't pay property taxes, they all make a payment in lieu of taxes. And that, is usually equivalent to what the property taxes would be on a property like that. Um, and then those ski areas, whether they're operated by Vail, like Sunapi, or whether they're operated by some other entity, like in Pennsylvania, they're all competing on a level playing field, even with the smaller ski areas, because then they have the same overhead expenses. And I don't think, I don't think Vail could spend that kind of money over, over oh, don't. 10 years. Um, they don't. Yeah, they yeah. don't. And that's 40 ski areas. You know, that's not three, you know, so it's just not right. And and I think if they they really wanted to, you know, stay in the favor of the rest of the industry, they, they could offer up a percentage of their annual capital budget to the private sector to apply for, whether that's in the form of energy efficiency grants through NYSERDA or the utilities or whether it's through a low interest loan program, or whether it's through some sort of economic development program. But if they could put a percentage of that money into a separate pool that we as small operators could apply for so that we could keep updating our facilities to stay somewhat competitive with the ultra modern facilities of Bel Air, Gore and Whiteface, then it would make us feel a little bit better. But I can't even speak to that number, a billion dollars with a B. How do you how do you even respond to that? I, I just can't. I can't speak to it. it. It's it's a number I can't even conceive. So it, it, it really falls on the legislature. I can't speak to it anymore. I can't I can't get mad about it anymore. Otherwise I'll stress myself into the grave, you know? So, so not I don't want to raise your stress level too high here, Lazlo, <laughs> but 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 humor me on this question. If New York State doesn't do anything and they continue to funnel a hundred to hundred and twenty million dollars per year into these three ski areas, and in New York ski areas are already competing against Vermont, where it's much easier to build things like slopeside lodging and they have bigger resorts and and they're mostly owned by big out-of-state companies. If nothing happens, is New York State strangling its private ski sector? Absolutely. One hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> it's 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 scary. I mean, imagine what you could do with that twelve million dollars that Gore is putting into one lift. Right. Exactly. Imagine. Exactly. We can't even fathom it. We can't even yeah, fathom you know, it. And that's yeah. that's the shame of it all. And, you know, we weren't saying, you know, for Bel Air to take out their 2010 lift and give it to Platykill. What about the other small ski mountains? Mm-hmm. No, we're, we're saying take out that 2010 lift and figure out a way to offer that up to, mm-hmm. you know, smaller ski mountains to actively have an opportunity to bid on that lift, you know, instead of it just being potentially dis- scrapped, scrapped or, yeah. or considered junk or, you know, it, yeah, 
look, I don't want to keep you all day. I just have a couple more questions for you here and then I'll let you go. I, I really want to get the story here. And I've told this story through the Storm Skiing newsletter and we've talked about it in the past, but just give us the quick rundown of what happened with Liftopia, because I know that this was a relationship that was important to you. I believe you were Liftopia's first ever customer. And I think you ended up feeling very betrayed by this, but I don't want to speak for you. Talk about your relationship with Liftopia and what happened there uh, after the COVID shutdowns. We had created an agreement with them that they would pay us after the fact, I think was the biggest problem, that biggest mistake we ever made. Instead of saying, you know, as you sell tickets for us through your software, we get paid, you know, the next day or whatever and have something set up, you know, electronically, electronic fund transfer kind of situation where we're getting constant payments. Instead, we had it set up for years. I mean, this goes back so many years where it wasn't really so extinct to do, but we had checks mailed to us, you know, for payment. So once uh, we were done with ticket sales for a month, we had a check mailed to us for that month's sales that they had done. So that was a big mistake on our part because COVID hit. And all the tickets that they had sold across all their mountains at that point that they were partnering with, you know, they had all the backlash of everything being immediately shut down and and, and people wanting their money back for tickets that had been sold and whatever. And I think they just got in over their head with how they were going to restructure and pay who they were going to pay and how they were going to pay and whatever. And unfortunately, it came down to, you know, which mountains they're going to probably pay first and which ones maybe we're putting the most, I don't even know how it all shut down from, you know, their standpoint, like how it all went. But unfortunately for the small guy, some of the small mountains, you know, got screwed because, you know, we didn't receive that check for the sales that had been made for previous months, not even has nothing to do with the whole COVID shakedown and, and ticket money that they had to give back to people because mountains had closed. This was for sales that had taken place months prior to all of that happening, that we were expecting payment that wasn't coming because they were trying to figure out how they were going to get themselves out of that whole debacle. So how much did they owe you and how much did you get? Oh boy. Seven, they owed us $17,000 in change. And it took until last year in the middle of the winter, we got back roughly one third of that, about $6,000. And how did that feel after being, after committing to them so early? I felt very betrayed by Evan Reese. Evan Reese and I personally shook hands on this when he came out with this idea and we were his first customer. And he really, I really felt like he took advantage of the smaller ski areas. I know other skiers were owed a lot more money than that, but they also had a lot more horsepower to fight it. And, uh, you know, we signed on to every possible class action lawsuit and whatever that was potentially brewing, but we didn't have the horsepower to chase after this thing. And, you know, he didn't return phone calls. Then he tried to railroad me into signing up to his new platform, and then he would pay us back after his new platform under the name Catalate took off. And uh, I... I'm just disappointed the way they took care of the whole thing. They they could have done it a lot differently. And uh, I took it very personally, especially, you know, when I found out the kind of house he lived in and the location he lived in and where a lot of this money was going. It was wrong. It was wrong. Where was the money going? Yep. And, and he's still to this day, no, no phone calls, no conversations, nothing. Where was the money going? Yeah, I, I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I don't know. 
So who are you using now as your technology partner? We use White Peaks Technologies. Yeah. Um, we yeah. work with them now. So we do all our own online sales. So we don't have that middle person. So we work directly with them to provide our software for online sales, which of course now all mountains have, most mountains I would say, have moved to online ticket sales since COVID. The skiers are just now completely used to going online and purchasing their tickets in advance online. It's just the way it is now which has been huge for the industry and, and huge for us because skiers are making that commitment with the dynamic pricing model of being able to offer cheaper prices. The earlier you buy, the cheaper the pricing. We have that implemented through White Peaks. So it's been wildly successful because your guests are making the commitment to your mountain in advance as a result, paying for cheaper, a little bit cheaper pricing on their lift tickets. And we get skiers to come and they come kind of irregardless of how the weather may pan out for the given day. All right. Let's. Uh, one of the last things I want to discuss with you here is the Ski Cooper Pass. So you've created a number of reciprocal partnerships. So your season pass holders get three days at Snow Ridge. They get three days at Swain. Those are both small New York ski areas, about the same size as yours. Um, you have Lee Canyon listed on the site, though. I, I I would check on that one because they've been purchased by Mountain Capital Partners and probably are ending the reciprocals. Then Mount Dulac in Wisconsin, and then Ski Cooper. So in two days at Homewood in California. So Ski Cooper is interesting. They've come under some scrutiny from IndyPass in particular, who is saying that Ski Cooper is essentially running a national pass because you can buy it for $379. They will mail it to you and they have clusters of ski areas all over the country that are reciprocal partners. A lot of places with big reciprocal coalitions like Bogus Base in Idaho, for example, all of those are concentrated in the West. So it's a little bit different thing. IndyPass is now reportedly asking their partners to choose between participating in the Ski Cooper Pass and participating in the Indy Pass. So a number of ski areas, Granby Ranch, Colorado, Soldier Mountain, Idaho, Big Powderhorn, Michigan, Spirit Mountain, Minnesota, have said, you know what? We don't get a check from Ski Cooper. We do get a check from Indy Pass. So we are going to go with the Indy Pass. Curious what your reaction to all of this is as an observer and as a Ski Cooper partner, do you think they're being un unfairly singled out? Do you think IndyPass has a point? Kind of what's your take on this whole Ski Cooper situation? I think that they are being unfairly singled out, but I do see IndyPass's point and I do understand, but it's a competitor and it's a fair competitor and they're competing on a level playing field. The detriment goes to all the ski areas that are part of it, exactly like those guys said. They're not getting a check from Ski Cooper, they are getting a check from IndyPass. I mean, what is the premise behind these partnership passes? It's to increase skier visits. IndyPass took that one step further and they made it a, a payout program. So you're not only increasing skier visits, hopefully, but you're getting some money for it. So, you know, the benefit to Ski Cooper is that they're getting the checks. And they're offering their season pass holders 75 different ski areas to ski at for one money. Now, this is a great benefit to the Ski Cooper season pass holders, and it's a great benefit to Ski Cooper's bottom line. It was a very smart move to structure it this way. And they actually started this very quietly a number of years ago when they approached us about doing a, an exchange program, as did Homewood mountain out there and as did lee canyon those three skiers all approached us about doing something similar 
when they started this. We, as an Eastern ski area, saw it as a value to our season pass holders that, hey, they can go to these Western ski resorts when they're on a Western vacation and go experience some Colorado mountain powder or some Nevada powder or whatever. And, uh, you know, we thought it was a, a neat idea. So we joined on long before it became what it is today, long before IndyPass even existed. Now we are sitting back and saying, okay, this is really benefiting the Cooper Mountain season pass holders, the Ski Cooper season pass holders. And what is it really benefiting us? A number of years before that, we actually joined the Freedom Pass. This idea is very similar to this, but there's no cost to it. And all the members of the Freedom Pass offer three days for free at their various different ski areas. And they were kind of spattered all over the country. Before the Freedom Pass existed, or while the Freedom Pass existed, we actually joined forces with Mount Bohemia. Now, Mount Bohemia, we did not know at the time, was selling a $99 season pass for one week every year in December. And what we found with Mount Bohemia very quickly is we were getting a lot of redemptions for free tickets from people that did not have a Michigan address. And then we came to realize that thousands of people around the country were buying these Mount Bohemia passes just for the free deals. Right. So we quickly had to end that relationship with Mount Bohemia because it was just benefiting them and they were selling a ton of season passes and uh, it wasn't benefiting anybody else except for some peripheral food sales and maybe uh, rental sales or whatever. So then the Cooper Pass started growing and we, we are finding now that it's turning into the same kind of thing. It's a cheap season pass offering people deals around the country and a lot of those people don't even live in Colorado. And they never even ski at Ski Cooper. They just buy the pass for the free deals. So we are starting to rethink it ourselves. And if our redemptions start getting really crazy, we're going to more than likely back out of the Ski Cooper deal too. So we're, we're monitoring that very closely this year. Yeah, the partnership was created to create value for our existing pass holders to be able to go ski other mountains. It was not for the individual mountains to see how many partners they could get to be aboard their season's pass, which happened to be a cheap price, you know, to potentially sell more season passes at their mountain, like that angle. So it's definitely something we need to be wary of. It's just been an eye opener now with everything that's come to light about the Ski Cooper Pass relative to how it conflicts now with the Indy Pass and payout versus non-payout. So yeah, it's definitely something that that we're going to regroup on. A lot of times the mountain partnerships that we work with, and actually we're focused this year, actually, ironically, to create more mountain pass holder relations to increase our pass holder offerings with other mountains. Um, so ironically, it's something we're in the thick of right now, and we're going to have a lot more mountains added to it for the upcoming season. And a lot of them happen to be, you know, partner mountains that are totally fine with saying, hey, yeah, we'll share pass holders, but, you know, not during holiday periods when we're super busy. And all the mountains that we've really partnered with up until this point have all been completely respective of that. You know, some people are like, well, then we're going to bow out because that doesn't follow our model because we follow the Freedom Pass, for example, where it's no blackouts. So we respect that. But then there's others that are like, well, that's okay. We'll do an arrangement with you guys and we will honor the fact that you guys won't allow it on a holiday weekends. But now it's kind of interesting that all these partners that we formed are all understanding and flexible with whatever sort of arrangements we want to make on our end as far as redemptions here. However, Cooper has made it pretty clear that 
they don't want any relationship with Platykill unless we make it valid any time. So originally, how it was originally thought of is like, well, it would be great. You know, our pass holders could go and ski Cooper when they're out there. It's an opportunity to ski out west and ski a mountain. And we'll make that exception. That's fine. Like how many skiers really could it be back and forth sharing pass holders to the mountain? You know, it's just an added benefit. But now kind of looking full circle, it's like, hmm. I'm not sure. So Cause they're not, they're not all from Colorado. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the powder Alliance, which is similar to the freedom pass goes a step further. And these are big ski areas out West, like Sierra Tahoe and Loveland and silver mountain, Idaho. And most of them black out, not only holidays, yes. but weekends. Yeah. It's basically a midweek coalition. Yeah. Right. Right. So last question for you here today, we've mentioned the Indy pass a lot. You've had an open invitation for many years. I know from talking to Doug fish and you actually, so what is your current thinking on the Indy pass? Are you considering it? Have you ruled it out? Where are you at? We're actually considering again. We, we met with Doug earlier this year in May and we spoke to him a little bit and it's still on the table, but We've been reluctant to get involved with it because our concern was always putting people into chairlift seats at a discounted rate when our chairlifts are already full with full price paying ticket holders. And then they came out with a, a new pass, Indy Plus, that they said we could put you know some blackouts on and things like that. You know, we're we're considering it, but we also you know, look at the Cooper Pass and the Indy Pass and things like that. And we're a little bit concerned as to the risk of losing season pass holders to those passes, because you could ski so many mountains for 300 and some odd dollars on each one. People could essentially own an Indy Pass and a Cooper Pass and have 150 ski areas to ski at or more, you know. Um, I think we so- also wanted to be true to like who we are and our niche our special niche of being truly independent and, you know, with the Indy Pass just creating so many mountain partners so quickly. And, you know, there was partners on there like Cannon Mountain, which is run by the state of New Hampshire. And then there was like Jay Peak, which it's like, I mean, Indy, I don't know. It just didn't really go with the model. We just didn't want it to get all convoluted of staying true to who we are. And so we just weren't a hundred percent sure. We just wanted to go down that path. But are, are all the members really indie? That's the, the question. And and we are and we we feel it and we live it every day and we have a passion for it. You know, I don't know what drives Indy to sign up some of these huge mountains. I know they just want to sell more passes, but are we sitting in the same jar of of indie ski areas? You know, when we're competing against places like J Peak, which I think is their largest redemption, if I'm not. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It is several years in a row. And it was independent and was purchased by Pacific Group Resorts based in Park City, which owns six ski areas across North America. So not technically independent anymore, but Jay does sell a lot of passes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great mountain. So you're running one of the best independent family owned ski areas in the country. If anyone has not been there, you got to put it on your list for a Northeast tour. Danielle Laszlo, I really cannot thank you enough for all the time you gave me today. I know I took up your whole morning, but believe me, the listeners are going to love this one. There is nothing else like Platykill. So thank you very much. I am really looking forward to getting up there again this winter and skiing some of this new stuff that you're talking about and good luck with everything. Thank you so much. Stuart, thank you so much. We appreciate everything you do, Stuart. Thank you. That's Danielle and Laszlo Vete, owners of Platykill Mountain, New York. 
that was fun. Really, really a pleasure. If you're a New Yorker, put Platy on your list. Please go there next time you've got to hit the bump on a Saturday and lift lines at Hunter extend out to the throughway. There are no lift lines at Platykill. Just good, fun skiing. Thank you all so much for listening. I've got a lot more East Coast on the way for you. Mount Snow is already in the can, and I have conversations with the leaders of Killington, Cranmore, Atitash, and Sunday River scheduled over the coming months. The best way to get those episodes the moment they're live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.